And I'm going to ask you now to turn your Bibles to the prophecy of Joel. Prophecy of Joel. We've been studying this book, as you know, in our midweek services. And it is a magnificent book. And uh, in fact, in many ways, this book actually opens a new era in the history of Israel. Why do I say that? Well, because many scholars actually believe that Joel was only the second book of the writing prophets to be written. The first being Obadiah. So chronologically speaking, Joel comes only second of all of the writing prophets. Joel predates Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Nahum, Micah, Habakkuk, so forth and so on. And he marks as a prophet, he marks a shift in the way in which the prophetic office itself function, in which the way, the way in which the prophets themselves related to the nation of Israel, the way in which they engaged with the people of Israel. In the early days of the nation, during the time of the judges, with Samuel and all the other prophets that came after him, and uh, through the reigns of David and Solomon, the prophets were mostly, to use the words of Gerharder's boss, reorganizers and reconstructionists. And by that, what I mean is that their emphasis was on calling Israel to be faithful to the covenant that Israel had with God. That is what they focused on. They wanted to reorganize, bring back the kingdom of Israel to do what it was supposed to do. Now, when the writing prophets begin to write, if you notice, Samuel himself doesn't have prophetic books that he wrote. He's, uh, he wrote perhaps historical books. But when the writing prophets come onto the scene, Joel, Amos, Hosea, etc., they are still calling for repentance. Nevertheless, they know more deeply now that the present order has to be overturned. The present order, Israel as it is, has to be replaced by something better. They understand that a regeneration needs to occur. Rebirth has to come to the nation itself. And in our passage this evening, uh, Joel is going to introduce that idea. Again, he is the second of all these prophets, and he is going to begin to harp on this theme, that there has to be an overturning, and a new leave in Israelite history. So he is going to focus in our passage, in chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, on the future restoration of the nation of Israel. Again, this is a theme that all the other prophets are going to pick up on and expand. That the Jews will be restored in the future. And we are still waiting for that day. The prophets prophesied of it. And thousands of, year, of years later, we are waiting. We are waiting for that day. And so uh, for us, it, it, the question does come up, why should we care though? If I'm a Gentile... And I already have my regeneration. Why should I care that Israel is going to be itself regenerated as a nation? And I'm going to let, to answer that question, I'm, I'm going to let the Dutch Reformed theologian, Wilhelm Abraco answer that. Uh, he wrote in his magisterial, The, Christian, the Christian's Reasonable Service, it's an amazing uh, systematic theology. He wrote there why it is that Gentiles should focus their minds on the future restoration of the Jews to the land of Canaan and their future conversion. He gives us some, uh, some reasons why we should care as Gentiles. And, and he says, number one, that when that happens, we're going to get to witness the immutability of God's covenant to Abraham. God promised Abraham that... His descendants would be in the land of Canaan forever. And uh, he also promised that he would be their God forever. And you have Israel as a, an apostate, sinful, stiff-necked people. But the faithfulness of God has not changed. 
God is faithful. And one day, He is going to bring these promises to pass. And when He does, we're going to get to see the power and the faithfulness of our God. Amen. So that's one reason why Abrakel says, you need to focus on this future day when Israel would be restored. But here's another reason that he gives. He says that, the, um, that we should avoid despising them. Uh, along with the world, the world already despises the Jews. But Paul says uh, in Romans 8, to, uh, 11, 28, that they are beloved be- for the sake of the fathers. So one day, um, this, is, uh, this is going to be a people that is holy and glorious above all the other peoples of the earth. And so we need to esteem them even today. And we also need to pity them for the same reason, because they are so hated and have been hated because, of course, of their rejection of Jesus Christ. They said that His blood be upon us and on our children. And they have, uh, they, they, they have reaped a harvest of hatred and, and judgment uh, for that. But this should actually move us to pity. I mean, think even of, of wokeism nowadays. Uh, wokeism based upon... Crying out against um, minorities that are oppressed. And yet, even as wokeism has absolutely taken over our society, in the years 2020 and 2021, anti-Semitic crimes have actually increased by 34% in one year. So this is the kind of hatred that the world has always expressed toward the Jewish people and that hatred should move you and I to pity them and also of course we should also pity them because of their lost condition they hate the very Messiah that came for them and they're on their way to eternal destruction so we should pity them as lost as lost so uh, this is what a, a, a Brackle says. And so he says, if you, if you pity them, if you respect them, if you esteem them as you should, then this should also move you to, to pray for them, pray for their conversion. After all, they prayed for the conversion of the Gentiles for many, many years. They waited for the Messiah to come in ancient times. And the Messiah did come. And then Israel hardened its heart against the, the Messiah. But they prayed for many years for this deliverer to come and even be the light of the Gentiles. And now he is. And so at the very least, we need to pray for them, for their restoration. And we need to live in such a way that they are actually attracted to our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever met uh, Jews and spoken with them, but they tend to always speak of how Christians are hypocritical. Um. But we ought to do differently and actually live in such a way that they see divine power. Again, all of these are the, the, the reasons why, according to Wilhelm Brackel, we should focus on the restoration of the Jews as Gentiles. And, uh, and so we are doing that, especially this evening and the text in front of us, because this text, among others, speaks of that. Restoration. Now, last week or last time we met, we talked about the material restoration that they were going to enjoy, uh, which is in verses 18 through 27. But 28 through 32 speaks of the spiritual restoration of Israel. So verses 27, uh, 18 through 27 speaks again of the of the exceeding fruitfulness that the land of Canaan one day was going to have. In other words, the, the covenant curses were no longer going to be part uh, and parcel of what was taking place there in Canaan. Uh, but that is uh, uh, a material restoration. Here you see a spiritual restoration. It, and, it, and it is centered around the outpouring of the Spirit of God. Look at the opening of verse 28, of course, in our text. It says, 
Verse 28, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Now, the expression after this, of course, refers again to the material restoration recorded in the previous verses. They'll have rain and food. They'll have security. God will be in the midst of Israel, as he says in verse 27. And on the heels of that material restoration, after this, you're going to see a spiritual restoration. It says, after this, uh, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. The, the um, verb that is translated here as to pour out is, is communicating uh, or, or, or it has to do with communicating something in abundance or even to, to serve lavishly like rainfalls or waterfall. It's distinct from this idea of giving something drop by drop, dripping, of course. Uh, the thing that is being spoken of here is the Holy Spirit. He will not be dripped. He will be poured out, given in abundance. And of course, we're talking here of the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. The Bible consistently speaks of him, compares him to water. Isaiah 44 verse 3, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, and I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. And John chapter 7 verses 38 and 39, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And it says that he was speaking of the spirit. So the spirit across divine revelation is likened to water. You say, why? Well, on the one hand, he cleanses sinners, right? He purifies them. He makes them pure unto God. It speaks of uh, the washing of regeneration in Titus 2, 3 or 3, 5. And uh, on the other hand, the water itself is life-giving. Think even in terms of the, uh, the, the desert uh, topography of the promised land or, or, or Palestine. And there is an, uh, an, an even greater uh, emphasis there on the need for water. And so water is life-giving and so... The Spirit is compared to water. Now, if you think about it, the Spirit in the days of the Old Testament was never poured, was never outpoured. It was never given in abundance. You never see the whole conversion, uh, the whole nation converted at one time. You see massive, great revivals, but, but not one uh, that, that is uh, so large. Um, and these revivals tend to be just temporary. Right. But here in this case, you have a, an outpouring of the spirit of God that is that is once and for all. And in the regenerate, uh, the, the regenerate Israelites throughout the history of the Old Testament, they were few and far between. Most of the people in the land, in the land of Israel were actually born again people, spirit indwelt people. Uh, and even in terms of gifting, if you want to also talk about the ministry itself of the Holy Spirit, uh, of the Holy Spirit beyond causing someone to be born again, in terms of gifting, he only uh, indwelt, came upon the prophets, the kings, and the priests. So uh, he perf- he came upon some men for a specific task. Nevertheless, here's a promise that. This is, this is going to change in the future. He will be poured out. And it says on all mankind. The word mankind here literally means flesh. That's why the uh, ESV and the King James Bible say, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, some have taken that to mean that uh, even non-rational creatures are going to receive the spirit. But, uh, and that's because sometimes the expression all flesh refers to all living beings, including both men and animals. But nowhere does the Bible say, say that the, the, the Spirit comes upon uh, non-rational creatures, animals. So that's obviously a foolish interpretation. But the point here of, the, of, of using the word flesh is that the prophet wanted to call to mind the nature of man, which is the, devoid of divine life. Romans 7, 5, while we were in the flesh, the, the, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So the flesh 
is humanity as infected, as affected by the sickness, the stain of sin. Under the, the old covenant, Israel, save for a few exe- exceptions, they had consistently walked in the flesh. Fleshly people. And that's why eventually the nation itself is vomited out of the promised land. Because they walked according to the flesh. Nevertheless, again, Joel says of a glorious day in which the Spirit would come upon all flesh. Now, what does all flesh refer to? Some say that he's talking about all humanity here, even the Gentiles. And they would argue that this is, that, that Joel is speaking of what David was talking about in Psalm twenty-two, fourteen, where he said that all the families of the nations would worship before Yahweh, or they would say this is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, where it says that God's salvation would reach even to the ends of the earth. Now, obviously, those things are true, and they will happen. There will come a time in which God is going to turn uh, to, or, or the whole world is going to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and bow before Him in worship. But in this case, the focus, I believe, is primarily on the nation of Israel. Other prophets uh, also talked about the outpouring of the Spirit specifically on the Jews. Ezekiel chapter 39, 29. I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I will have poured out my Spirit on the house of Israel. It says in Zechariah 12, 10. It says, I will pour out my I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a a firstborn. So there are prophecies here to the effect across the Old Testament to the effect that there will be a massive spiritual revival in Israel in the last days. And Joel actually makes it clear that he is referring to that. He's speaking of the nation of Israel specifically. Notice the second part of verses 28 and 29 here. It says, It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So notice, there are four different categories of people here listed. Sons and daughters, old men, young men, and male and female servants. So if you think about it, he wants us to think again in terms of categories of people. All kinds of people, without exception. The young, the old, the men, the women, the, ma- the, the, uh, the servants, the rich and the poor alike. All kinds will receive the Spirit. Even slaves, he says here. Notice, even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my Spirit. He's, he's emphasizing here this. Because there isn't a single instance in all of the Old Testament in which... A servant is said to have been taken up by the Spirit. So again, this is going to be an unprecedented thing. But the the point uh, that actually Joel is making here is that this is going to happen in Israel. uh, Because again, he qualifies all the categories with the possessive pronoun. Your sons and daughters, your old men, your young men, your male and female servants. So he's predicting something that will happen to the Jews specifically. And that is, of course, a massive revival of religion, an utter transformation. They will have the spirit. Now, notice what the consequence of that will be here. Joel tells us immediately what will happen as a result of the Jews having the spirit. He says, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. So because, of, because every kind of Jew here, uh, regardless of social class or gender or age, has received the Spirit, uh, who is now the revealer of God, then every kind of Jew will engage in supernatural revelation. Joel mentions prophesying and dreaming dreams and seeing visions. Uh, to prophesy... As you know, is to speak for God. So sometimes even the act of preaching is uh, 
referred to as prophesying. But of course, in the more technical word, uh, uh, or in the more, more technical sense, uh, prophecy is a revelation of God's mind that otherwise has not been given. So it's a, to disclose a message from God. And Joel is using it in that sense, the word prophesy, because he mentions the giving of dreams also, and visions in connection with all of this. So not, not only is God going to give messages to the Jews during this time in the future in a propositional way, but he is also going to communicate to them messages through visions and dreams. By the way, the, the difference between a vision and a dream is that, of course, for the dream, you're asleep. Uh, your consciousness is more or less disconnected from your personality. And that's why when God spoke to unbelievers in the Bible, Abimelech, Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Pilate's wife, that's why when he spoke to unbelievers who were not surrendered to him, for the most part, he spoke to them in dreams. In dreams. A vision, on the other hand, uh, is one in which the recipient receives the message, but he receives it more actively. He is awake. Peter, Paul, John... All of those men received visions. And to be sure, dreams and visions are the, the early and less perfect forms of communication across uh, the uh, history of redemption. You see them at the outset, actually, or at the beginning of a new shift, a new era in God's dealing with man. So in the early history of Israel, the times of the patriarchs, for example, there was a proliferation of dreams. You see, Jacob having a dream. Uh, Abraham probably has dreams and visions. But that eventually comes to, starts to slow down as Moses comes on the scene and begins to write. He writes the Pentateuch. And then you see visions pick up one more time in the times of the prophets. When things are changing, the writing prophets, things are changing again they have realized or it's become clear god has made it clear that uh, the present order again needs to be overturned so you have a a picking up of dreams and visions and uh that is what happened during the times of the of the prophets because israel uh, now is going to go into captivity and they are going to experience a future restoration and the prophets have these visions to know this uh, and then, obviously, you have the Babylonian captivity, and that is followed by the 400 years of silence. And so, there's a dying down of, of prophecies and dreams. Uh, nevertheless, then you have dreams and visions picking back up again in this new economy of God's working with man. The apostles... And uh, many of the early Christians were passing down now again these prophecies and visions and dreams. Acts chapter 11 verses 27 through 28 speaks of a band of prophets from Jerusalem, including Abigail, who, who, who foretells that there will be a worldwide famine. And um, Acts chapter 21 verse 9 speaks of Philip the Evangelist as one who had four daughters who were prophetesses. And Acts Chapter 9 verse 10 says that uh, Ananias, it says of him that, he, that the Lord spoke to him in a vision. So again, toward the beginning of the New Testament church, you see this proliferation of revelatory messages. Then, then the New Testament itself is encoded, is put, on, put into writing, and those leave. They end. But what Joel is saying here is that this will open back up in the future. You say, well, uh, that means then that I should turn on my TV and start listening to the prophets who say that they have dreams and visions. Uh, because we might be in this period already. But to that I said, no, you should not. They are lying prophets. They are false prophets. Uh, and the test of it is, are we in this period yet? Have you seen the sun darkened and the moon turned into blood and fire and smoke? Have you seen all of the nations gathered around Israel, which we'll see later on will happen? So again, this, 
these will be millennial realities. They're not for this age. For this age, the canon is closed. We have all the revelation that we need. But somehow, in the future, as the last days fully come upon us, there will be some sort of revelation being made again. You say, what's going to be revealed? And I say, I wouldn't know because it hasn't been revealed yet. And so uh, what we know here is that revelation is going to flourish one more time as this new era breaks forth, just like it happened in the previous eras. And that will be a, a fulfillment, by the way, of a, of, a, of a prayer that Moses made in Numbers 11.29. In Numbers 11.29, he said, it says there, uh, But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them. So notice, Moses asked back then that God would pour His Spirit on His people and that they would all be made prophets. And here you find this same thing. It says that they, uh, this massive group uh, in the land of Israel will be indwelt by the Spirit and they will even begin to give God's will. And that's actually going to bring an incredible blessing upon the church of the Gentiles. Uh, Paul actually speaks of that in Romans 11.5. He says, if their rejection, he's speaking of the Jews there, and he says, if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from death? In other words, what he is saying there is, is that when the Jews finally receive the Spirit of God and they have their eyes open to who Jesus Christ is, then the church of the Gentiles will be so invigorated and renewed that the previous state, which we are on right now, the previous state will be like, will seem like the difference between a dead man and a living man. It is as though the church is going to come alive for the first time. That's how powerful the church of the Gentiles will become when the Jews are saved. So this is going to be a massive blessing to the church. Now, for the world, the unbelieving world, this is going to mean destruction and judgment. And uh, Joel points that out in verses 30 and 31. Look at verses 30 and 31. It says, I will display. So even as, as this is occurring in the Israelite camp, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The expression, I will display here, literally says, I have displayed in the Hebrew. Uh, it's a rhetorical device to stress the certainty of this. This is so sure to happen that you might as well speak of it in the past tense. I have displayed, I will surely display wonders in the sky and bring judgment upon the world. The, the, the wicked tells himself that there is no God, that God does not see, that his iniquity cannot be found out. But scripture actually speaks clearly, judgment is coming. And at that time, God will display, it says, wonders in the sky and on the earth. The word for wonder here refers to something that is out of the ordinary, something that is supernatural. This is uh, the same word that Moses used uh, to speak of the staff when God turned it into a snake. That was a wonder. And this word also describes the ten, the ten plagues of Egypt and the manna from heaven and the pillar of fire. So we're talking about miraculous things that are actually signs also, and they will be displayed in the sky and on the earth. The, the, he mentions here, if you notice, the sky first and then the earth, but he actually then starts to describe the wonders that are in the earth. We call that a chiastic structure. You mention something first, but then you expand on it last. So Joel mentions the wonders in the sky first, and then he describes the wonders of the earth first. And those are, as it says here, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. Now, if you think about it, blood, fire, and smoke, those are things that pertain to wars. The spilling of blood 
and the ravaging of a, of a city and the smoke that comes from that and the fire. Those are the elements of war. But again, notice that this text is categorizing the blood, the fire and the smoke as supernatural signs. So this at least has to mean that the destruction that is occurring, the blood, the fire and the smoke that you see on the world that that is coming by God. That God is the one who is directly waging war on the wicked. This is the day of God's judgment on the wicked. You find them uh, in, in the story of the ten plagues. These signs of blood, fire and smoke. Um, he turned the, Egyptian, the Egyptians' waters into blood. He then several times filled the land with fire and smoke. And in the same way, as the Spirit, again, is being poured out in Israel, you are going to have at the same time this terrible judgment on the world. And it will be also accompanied by great signs in the sky. Again, verse 31 says, The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The word for darkness here is almost invariably associated with divine judgment. It's a word that... Uh, was used to describe the ninth plague of terrible darkness, unbearable darkness. So the sun somehow, there in the future, is going to disappear. And even the moon itself will be turned into blood. Some believe that this is a lunar eclipse. Others say that uh, volcanic ash, when it goes up, uh, makes the sun darken and it gives the moon a reddish glow. But I actually... Don't know. I'm not sure that you can uh, account for these by natural means. Because again, um, these are supernatural acts of God that have never ever occurred. Jesus said in Matthew 24:29, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then in Luke chapter 21, 11 and verses 25 and 26, he said, And there will be great earthquakes in, and in various places plagues and famines, famines. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. There will be signs in, suns, in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth this display among, many, among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the seas and the waves, men fainting from, the, from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So again, even as uh, Israel is experiencing this restoration as something so significant is happening there, in the rest of the world, there will be utter terror. And all of this takes place as it says here, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, at face value, that, that, that expression seems to suggest that all of this judgment will happen chronologically prior to the day of the Lord. It seems to say that the signs of the sky and on the earth will appear, and after that then comes the day of the Lord. And some actually take it that way, but... If you um, consider the, the word before carefully here, you'll notice that in most cases, the word before is actually used in a perceptual way, as the grammarians like to say. So, for example, in uh, Leviticus 16.30, it says, You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Now, wh what that is saying is that you will be clean from all your sins in the presence of the Lord. In fact, the, the word before means in the presence of or, or in front of, in the face of. And so for that reason, when we speak of before the uh, great day of the Lord, what we're saying here is, is that this is happening in light of the day of the Lord. In other words, was Joe, what Joe was saying was that this was happening because the coming day of the Lord had finally come. Judgment is breaking out. It had already arrived. And he says that this would be the great and awesome day of the Lord. The word for awesome there literally means to be dreaded. 
to be dreaded. So this is why sometimes you find it as the terrible day of the Lord. Because it's a time for judgment for the world. The, the greatness of, and the dreadfulness of that time is described in Zephaniah. You can turn there uh, if you keep your finger in Joel. Zephaniah chapter 1. It says there, uh, it's uh, Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, I'll be reading. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of, tr of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of His jealousy. For He will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. And also, the day of the Lord is described, I'll, t I'll show you one more, in Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6, verses 12 through 17. It says, I looked and I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as a sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood. These are the things that Joel is predicting and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? So, as Israel, again, is being restored spiritually, as they're receiving the spirit of grace and prayer, the world is going to be immersed in this very awful judgment. And we know this, that this is going to be the time of the tribulation, right? The tribulation. We know that during that period, Antichrist is going to be waging war against Israel. In fact, Joel himself points that out in this context. It says uh, in Joel chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, the immediate verses after our text. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, again, as this is happening, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. So all the nations, uh, they will be gathered by God for judgment. And that is described back in Revelation chapter 16, verse 12. Even again, in this uh, time, this tribulation time of great judgment, part of that will be, the nations themselves being gathered. Now they think that they're doing it on their own, by their own will and to accomplish their own end. But this is actually God himself drawing them into the place where he will destroy them in judgment. Revelation chapter 16 verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates. And its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. 
For they are spirits of demons, performing signs, which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. And then verse 15, he throws in a warning. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And verse 16 says, And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Harmageddon. So during this time of great judgment, the world is going to be attacking this spiritually revived nation of Israel. And Joel points out here the deliverance that they actually will enjoy even as that attack comes upon them. He does that in verse 32 of our text. It says, And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of Yahweh will be delivered. The, the verb to call here denotes a loud cry. It's the same verb that we use or the Old Testament uses for preaching, the act of preaching. And in this case, it's actually a cry for help. It's invoking the name of Yahweh for salvation. And of course, uh, that is what Joel is saying from an Old Testament perspective. But... What he really means is the Lord Jesus Christ. The name Jesus itself means what? Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. And Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 says that God bestowed on him, on Christ, the name which is above every name. So when Joel, from an Old Testament perspective, spoke of calling on the name of Yahweh, what he means ultimately is to call on the name of Jesus Christ. And if you do that, you will be delivered or saved. Now, of course, this is true in a spiritual sense. If you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're saved from your sin and the flesh and the world and the devil uh, and, 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 and this judgment here. But if you throw yourself into the arms of the Lord Jesus, you receive divine forgiveness, you're accepted into the family of God. And if you confess the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you don't need to fear because you will not be condemned in the, judge, in the judgment seat of God. That's the spiritual sense in which we speak of calling on Jesus. But in this text, he seems to be speaking of a prayer for physical deliverance because the all here refers to a nation that has received the spirit of grace and prayer in verse 28. So they, they, they will need to be delivered from this army that comes, this army of a, war, a one world system that is coming against them. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 2 says, I will gather the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. So the Jewish people will be more or less facing annihilation. And many of them, even in this time, will be killed. But some will be delivered, namely those who are part of this massive revival. They will be delivered physically. In fact... It says at the end of verse 32 here, For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. As the Lord has said, even among the, survivor, uh, the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now interestingly, he clarifies that he is simply repeating a prophecy that had already been made. It says, as the Lord has said here in verse 32, and you say, well, when did God say this? When did he say that some of the Jews would survive this assault on Zion? And the answer is in the one prophet who had written before Joel, namely Obadiah, Obadiah 17. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape and it will be holy. And in the, and the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. So notice Obadiah in Obadiah 17 had pointed out that there would be some survivors from the attack of all the nations against Israel. And Joel himself was repeating that here. He said, for on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now, notice this passage clarifies that actually those who call on the Lord will be called by him first, even among the survivors whom Yahweh calls. Uh, so again, it says, first you will be saved if you call 
on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. But then it turns it around and says, you will be saved if the Lord calls you. The point is that he's, he, he is showing here that God is the one who gives men and women to call on Him. Salvation is entirely from Him. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that faith, grace, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So even the faith to believe in God and to call upon His name is something that God Himself does give to you in the same way that He gives His Spirit he pours His Spirit on all kinds of people in Jerusalem, saves so many of them. And then, because now they have the Spirit, they can look to Christ for deliverance. And they do that. And as a result of all of this, the purging away of so many in Israel, and them calling on the name and receiving the Spirit and calling on the name, as a result of that, that has a sanctifying effect on the whole nation of Israel. So, this makes Israel holy. Again, the nations of the, of the world do attack the city and they kill the unbelievers. And those who are believers are delivered by God. So, this has an, a sanctifying effect. It brings about the completion of the spiritual restoration of Israel. It served a way to prepare for the kingdom of the Messiah, who will reign in a sanctified city. In the same way that Jesus Christ Himself now reigns over a sanctified people, namely the church. When the church was born, this whole prophecy actually started to even have its fulfillment. Uh, look at Acts chapter 2, verse 14 with me. There is um, a, an astounding um, allusion here to this prophecy. You remember in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the Spirit falls upon the 120 disciples of Jesus, and they begin to witness to the people at the festival. But each of those people begin to hear them in their own native language. So some men, obviously, I'm about to read verse 14, but what happened was that some men who obviously did not know these languages, they started to say that these people were drunk. But this is what happens as a result. Acts chapter 2 verse 14, Peter Taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be on the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And then he gives on the whole prophecy here. Now, obviously, his point could not be that the prophecy, the entire prophecy was fulfilled in this instance at Pentecost. It could not be because there are no wonders of the sky and of the earth here. There is no turning of the sun into darkness or the moon into blood. And to be sure, there is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We do see that. But it does not seem to be the exact outpouring that... Joel was speaking of or prophesying in his passage. And Peter, in fact, alludes to that. Because, first of all, the, the, the outpouring that Joel spoke of was on all flesh, right? And on, on all the nation of Israel or in a massive amount of people. Whereas, this is a smaller group. And, and Peter understood that himself. Notice verse 38. He says, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Christ of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of of your sins and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit in other words what he's assuming there is that the spirit had not yet come in the way in which Joel had predicted now was there a preview of that? Absolutely. And there was an outpouring of the Spirit that actually goes forth toward the gentile, to, to the church of the Gentiles. Right? The Spirit comes upon what is going to be the church. But at this point, 
what was being fulfilled was not so much every jot and tittle of what Joel had said, but rather it was commencing. The fulfillment of this prophecy was beginning to take place. This was an inauguration of something that is consummated in the final age. In other words, this still needs to happen. Um, so when he says again, back in chapter 2, verse 14, this is what the prophet, what was spoken through the prophet Joel, he doesn't mean that the prophecy had been fulfilled in the proper sense of the term, but that the eschatolo- that, that this, uh, the last days, the eschatological age had begun. And he was telling the Jews, look, you need to be on the right side of this. Because look at these words right here. You can see a preview of them. They're breaking forth into the world. So repent, receive the Spirit for yourself. That's what he meant. But again, all of this is in the future. That Israel will be restored spiritually one day. And as I mentioned before, that is going to be a time of immense blessing to all the world. And it it is going to bring more life and light and zeal to the Gentiles than even the fall of Israel did. The fall of Israel ensured that the gospel now went forth to all the nations. But if you think of the state of the church, even the visible church, with all of the heresies and the evil that is so prevalent among those who take upon the name of Christ, you, you see that something's amiss. And here, when, with the conversion of the Jews, there's going to be a massive change. And we will go from what is now dead to life. So, we pray to God that the Redeemer would come to Zion and turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Then Israel will rejoice, the Gentiles will glory, and together they will give honor and thanks to God for His salvation. Let's pray. Lord God, we do uh, look forward to the day in which you turn all ungodliness away from Zion. We ask that you would do so quickly and that you would take pity on your people and show us the fulfillment of the words that you gave to Abraham that you would place there his descendants and that they would be in the land and uh, that you would be God to them. Um, Show that to us, we ask. Accomplish your good purpose. Revive the church of the Gentiles um, so that we might all together serve you eternally. We pray these things for the glory of Jesus Christ who promised. Amen. Amen.